Okay. The Jamie is in rare form. Rare form. <laughs> I did. This is this has been a very snarky evening, though. So so I may be here for colorful remarks. We don't know, but I know that you enjoy them, Rob. So I'm also just. I thought about texting you and saying, you know, tomorrow I might be a better human being for this. <laughs> but uh, will we'll you see. be as much fun? We don't know. Only time will tell. Only time will tell. Hopefully I less like, than two and a half hours. I like the snark. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, welcome to Overdrinks. We are doing an absolutely old school style Overdrinks. We're, t- we're drinking and talking about a piece. One Here piece. One oh my a gosh. piece. <laughs> a piece. A 50 minute long Tome of a piece. It is. <laughs> but we'll get to that in a minute. I have with me, as you could probably already tell from the giggles and Andrew speaking, Andrew and Jamie. <laughs> Hi there. <laughs> and we are drinking because things need to get drunk. And drank, the semester drank, is almost over for drunk. us. Almost. Drinking. Drunken. Almost for you guys. Very Almost. much, very much over for me. Oh. Um, Yay! Which is nice. Why we shifted so much later this year, but it's happened slowly over time that we have shifted not not only like a week later than you, but two weeks later than Annie. Yeah, and seriously. So all of my closest friends are done teaching. Their grades are turned in. They're having a summer, and I'm like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Almost. Well, We're almost there. I don't know about having a summer yet. I mean, it's been freaking freezing over here. Um, and my daughter is still in online kindergarten. So, yep. There's still there's still responsibilities. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um I'm drinking and I'm I just brought the bottle down in anticipation. <laughs> in anticipation. Um, this is dangerous. <laughs> Do you remember the last time you had that much of this? <laughs> yeah. It'll well, be he said it was an old school episode, so old school. <laughs> it's gonna get slurry. Um, <laughs> it's Evan Williams Single Barrel. Nice. It's it's very good. Anyway, I am I am drinking a red wine from our cabinet. Wine. I do. It's it's got to be. It's nineteen crimes something. But I don't Pinot know. Noir. It's, it's a Pinot Noir. Okay. Yeah. It's uh. Mm-hmm. It's 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 Bernie. It's grape juice that burns. Ooh, Bernie. <laughs> That's pretty good. An adult juice box. An adult juice box. That's right. And I have the 19 Crimes Shiraz because I don't actually like the Pinot Noir. Why did you buy it then? We didn't. Uh, Jake and Sarah dropped it off on our front porch, oh. which was such a well, great thanks, Jake and surprise <laughs> gift during quarantine yeah. to open your door and there's just wine waiting for you. That's so wonderful. I, I wish I, I'm hoping that when the semester ends, I have the time to do this. But in the past four weeks, we've had uh, cookie delivery, wine delivery, and there was oh my god, M and M's, peanut M and M's were delivered. It's been right. The peanut M and M's. Our friends are just magical, and I don't even doesn't even occur to me to take care of other people. I'm just like (laughs) that is not true. Focused on number one at all. No, no, it's really hard to keep Andrew fed, (laughs) and so 
Well, they know that and they're helping you out. That's it's so true. They're so wonderful. Yeah. My office mate came down on, on Mother's Day and Andrew's like, somebody's in our driveway. And I was like, it's my friend. <laughs> and now to, to to make sure that the record is set straight, Jamie Lee Sampson, you have made uh dozens of masks by this point. And when, so no, you you're you're keeping people it's very different. You're very considerate as well. It's very different. <laughs> Maybe when the semester's over. <laughs> eh, a mask, life-saving possibility, but peanut M&M's. <laughs> I mean, it's a very different scenario of life-saving. It is, it is the life-saving. Because when Andrew's hangry, my God. <laughs> hey. <laughs> Get out of my kitchen. Take the M&M's. Don't come back for an hour. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of an hour. Speaking of hour. (laughs) Are you guys pissed me that I that I chose this piece for us to dive into? No, not really. It's almost as it's almost as bad as when we chose the Kaya Sariajo opera to do one of these about. Was I on that one? No, it was Jen and Rob and I. Oh. Because Jen, I don't think I've ever made Jen had the it. Jen Jen had the like she she read the book by its cover and decided after five minutes of listening that she didn't like that opera and and was ta- tasking Andrew and I to like change her mind. Andrew falls asleep during it every single time he watches it. We love it; it's beautiful. But to be to be fair, I fall asleep through to the uh, the Debussy too, Paleos and Melisande, which apparently uh, the Sariaho is kind of uh, in the same vein of, <laughs> and right? also Corleano's so, Ghosts of Versailles. <laughs> no, now Ghosts of Versailles is a special case. I get through the first act and it's delightful, but the second I act, think you I just need through. to work on sleeping better. <laughs> That's what that is. <laughs> That's probably true. <laughs> no, no, actually, I had never heard this piece until today. So I'm glad you chose it. Um, I, I'm, I'm going to be using it for some listening for the fall, I hope. Yeah, I, I think we, we were remarking that uh, there's quite a few sections um, that are just perfect for like an extended techniques uh, lab yes. to, to show yep. to showcase like the appropriate use of of uh techniques and sound yeah yeah actually i was i was thinking about that too as i was listening to this because um you can find the score on uh scribed Mm -hmm. and um it's it's there you can't download it unfortunately but uh but you can, you can scroll to it. your heart's content you can, right. you can scroll oh man can you scroll all 135 <laughs> pages of scrolling <laughs> Um, <laughs> but, uh, I, I was, I was listening to it again last night and, and looking at the score for the first time. And, uh, because I had listened to this, you know, like, I don't know, five or eight times before without the score. And yeah. I had a pretty good, uh, concept of what I thought was happening. Oh yeah, yeah right. Yeah. I was wrong. Yeah, I mean that's actually one of the points that I make in my extended techniques class because we've got it's just an eight weeks, eight week lab, um, and I go through each of the instrument families and kind of what they can do, and then a couple of individual com- uh, instruments and what they can do that's special and different. And um, one a couple of the assignments are now listen to this piece without a score. Don't even attempt to find it. And I want you to notate what you think you hear. 
Mm, yeah. Because there's so many instances where you're, we're sitting at the, you know, BGSU New Music Festival, for instance, and you're watching what's going on on stage and you can get sort of a sense of what is making the sound and how it's being made. But you but still don't quite vi- believe it either. Feedback. <laughs> you're like, right, right. No, that can't be what's producing that sound right now. <laughs> and then other times you just don't have access to that information at all and you have to try and recreate a really cool sound from scratch. And um, and I think this piece would is a really good example of, all right, what do you think you hear? Now what do you think you hear based on what you see? Yeah. And uh, and then how to incorporate it into a work? It's gonna be it's gonna be excellent for that. Well, it also it, it also kind of it 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 hits all of the things that you kind of want it to hit as a teaching material. Like it has the box notation. It has yep. like t- uh, time proport or proportional score notation. Yep. You know it 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 has all of those all of those techniques and I think it's notated really well there there were a few things in there that wouldn't pass my standards but um, <laughs> anyway well the piece is two years older than us show it some respect it is it is two years older yes you are correct so that means it was written in or it came out in 1982 yes and uh, the, the I don't even think we've said the piece yet we haven't no, I haven't noticed this is a big, <laughs> it's a big intro. mystery it's a big mystery then again it's Everybody probably ready? gonna be it, it's it's probably gonna be on the title of the of the podcast it's true so if you don't know what we're gonna talk about by now uh, it's <sighs> Jonathan Harvey's Bakhti for 15 instruments and quadraphonic tape yeah, and so the the fifteen instruments are. I mean, essentially, this is a modular chamber orchestra. Is yeah. that is that fair to is to, yeah. to to use that kind of terminology? Yeah, I think so. And I uh, mean, I'll I'll go through the the instruments if you want me to. It's, no, please do. Um, sorry, Jamie. There's no bassoon in it. Right. But, this is um, actually something I was going to bring up. Oh, I have a high horse about that we could go into, but you you go first. <laughs> Ooh, a high horse. Uh, flute doubling pick, oboe doubling English horn, clarinet doubling E flat, bass clarinet horn, uh, trumpet doubling piccolo trumpet, trombone, uh, percussion, piano doubling. Um, what did I write there? <laughs> piano doubling glockenspiel? Let me let me double check. <laughs> oh, oh. or is it is that? Yeah, I, I think that. Uh, I think yes, yes, you glock, are you are yeah. correct. Yeah. Piano, wow. piano is doubling glock. Yeah. All right, way to go, Jonathan Harvey. Uh, harp, and then there's uh, violin, viola, and cello. Yes, and of course the the tape, the quadraphonic um, tape, the quadraphonic tape. Um. Uh, the word bhakti, spelled B-H-A-K-T-I, is Sanskrit for devotion, love, or love of God. So there are 12 movements. And as we said, it's about between 45 and 50 minutes long. And it's, uh, it's a doozy. It's a, it's a tour de force in a lot of ways. I was actually really intrigued by it's it's 12 movements, but is each of the movements split into three kind of sections? There's like 36 sections. Yeah, see, I couldn't really parse that out. I know it said that in the um uh in the pro in the program notes, but yeah. I don't think they are um I don't think that's evenly distributed. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah, I think I think what the program note said was that it was for 
like cell repetition and development Mm -hmm. so that there were things that connected from one movement to another, Mm. maybe across the piece, you know, like movement three and movement nine might have similar cell material in it. So the gestures are different, but fascinating. Well, like we've only had basically a week uh, since was it a week since you last since you challenged us the gauntlet I was thrown so. down yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, so to to be perfectly honest we haven't done a dissertation level analysis of Bakhti it's okay um, I don't think anybody wants an over drinks with a dissertation level analysis thing that no, could get I fascinating think so. I think <laughs> um, only to you and me I was yeah. gonna say fascinating is one word for it <laughs> um, the, uh, uh, but but I I think the the interesting thing I I kind of thought about was um, you know you brought up the Sanskrit, uh, uh, this, is it after each of the 12 movements, there is a, a text taken from um, uh, the Rig Veda, right? Yes. The, the Hindu, uh, uh, how old is that? 4,000 uh, years old. It's 4,000? Yes. 4, that is a lot of thousands. Um, That's at least four of them. <laughs> and thinking about... Uh, I think I brought up at the end of the last episode as we were kind of deciding what we should be doing uh, this week uh, for our over drinks. I think I'd, I'd remembered that, oh, you know, I think I've come across Jonathan Harvey's name in kind of the spectral camp, like the next generation yes. sort of spectralist uh, composers uh, kind of associated with Julian Anderson and, you know, Magnus Lindbergh and Sariaho, like, like that kind of uh, mm-hmm. tier of, of composers. Um, and that kind of philosophical, uh, spirituality sort of that, that's, that's very much akin to how many of the spectralists, um, kind of think about the whole of their pieces. They come at Mm. it from a conceptual standpoint and they think about the whole trajectory of the piece first, and then they start worrying about the, the details. I might be a spectralist. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's that's interesting that you say that because I've been um, Jonathan Har- Harvey has a couple books out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, one is called um, Music and Inspiration. Look at you pull it off the shelf. Look at this. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the other one is in my iPad, so I'm not going to be able to pull it off a shelf or anything. But it's uh, in Quest of Spirit. Mm. is uh it's it's taken from a series of lectures he did and turned it into book form and it's the it's the later of the two books music and inspiration actually stems from the dissertation he did mm-hmm. and um then later kind of reformatted and turned it into a book but um in quest of spirit he he uh, I'm, I'm reading it right now and he i this quote kind of struck me and kind of ties in together with what you were talking about in terms of like having uh, a whole sense of the piece first and then worrying about details later and then how he views his not maybe not his music but at least views his act of composing a little bit differently than maybe some others so he said um in that book quest of spirit uh some art seems to say to its audience i don't know but I'm defiantly putting on a dazzling show anyway. <laughs> and you won't understand it either. <laughs> and, then he, and then he says, for me, great art tries a bit harder for truth, whatever the odds. And 
I I don't know. That just kind of struck me in relationship. I mean, in listening to, I, I've been kind of going over a lot of his uh, other pieces recently, um, but particularly in listening to this one, you know, um, I think because he is engaging with that, um, you know, devotion, love of God, in a lot of other of his other pieces, um, you know, he he's kind of dealing with aspects of meditation. Yeah, and I I was reading someone else someone else's article about him, and they say it'd be really easy for him to slip into you know just like slow meditative. You know, drone mantra yes, kind of it, yeah exactly, but um, I think through he's channeling this spiritual idea or meditative idea or whatever you want to call it. He's channeling that through his language, not making his language fit the idea. Mm. Yeah, no, I think I would agree with that. Yeah. Um. The. I don't know enough of his complete output, uh, and and we do say complete now because I think he died in 2012, right? Um, uh, yes, yeah, I think and that was the year. But and he's was, dead. Yeah, and there was a. Uh, I think last week I talked about pulling in dates uh, relative to one's own existence. Uh, so not mm-hmm. only can we say this piece Bhakti was written two years before we were born, uh, pre-existence, so to speak, for us, uh, PE, um, but uh, we. Uh, uh, I'm. I'm. Is that at, is that like BC or something? <laughs> PE. Not AD, physical education. BC, but, PE. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, in 2009. I think he was the composer uh, in residence at Huddersfield. And of course, Huddersfield uh, uh, in the UK is um, still regarded by a lot of people as a a very kind of um, avant-garde, contemporary, um, music-leaning bastion, a sanctuary kind of for those types of ideas uh, with people like Aaron Cassidy uh, who are are there uh, uh, doing some pretty intriguing, uh, fascinating things in in kind of a new complexity-ish sort of realm. Um, But that was 2009. A couple years later, I was in Huddersfield for the uh, International Computer Music Conference. And so, like, Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's always... It's always so interesting for me to think about how people overlap in ways that you don't necessarily expect. It's like Cloud Atlas. Yeah, well, it's it's that idea of I, I read about Jonathan Harvey in textbooks and this is a really important person and, you know, gosh darn it, I don't put myself in the category of being in their space mm. when in fact I very much have been in and around some of these people before, which is it every time it, it kind of blows my mind. And perhaps that's just very pedestrian of me, but I, I am really fascinated by those types of connections. Okay. You say that while using the word pedestrian as a adjective. I like adjectives. Clearly we do here. Um, so <laughs> now were you, no, I, sorry. I, I, never mind. Um, <laughs> so so let's kind of uh let's kind of get into this piece a little bit uh first of all um i think we wanted to talk about the beginning yeah i think uh so. 
without setting it up, let's just listen to maybe the first, oh, I don't know, minute or so. Yeah, I think that's, the that's, that's delightful. So I'll cut it off there, but (laughs) who starts a piece like that? I'm serious. It is a short harmonic on a cello. Just, and then just, oh my God. It's like the piece, it it is barely there at the beginning, you know? It one, is, one. If if you were sitting in the audience, you would almost assume that first note of the cello was a mistake. Was an accident. Exa- yeah. yeah. Exactly. Well, and it 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 it's fascinating because it simultaneously does and does not do what I tell my students not to do. Okay, I have to unpack <laughs> that a little bit. Maybe it, 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 it's simultaneous. So I I tell my students that there's only two ways to start a piece. It, okay. it either it either uh, confronts the external silence, that is to say, the 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 boundary between where your piece starts, right, and where the piece wasn't in existence before. Yeah. You either shatter that; it's I it's like earth-endingly in your face, or you can't perceive when your piece begins. Okay. My my issue is when I see a student come in with a mezzo forte or a mezzo piano dynamic at the beginning of their piece. I'm like, no, child, no. Oh well, <laughs> all right, hang on, just just oh, hang oh, we, on. Oh, there. we can unpack that. You're Here gonna you're gonna comes. lose, Rob. You're gonna lose. <laughs> Am I going to lose? Oh, you are. You, I have I have been well practiced at this argument. <laughs> okay, uh, what if it was not a student that came in with that? I still say that it's it is you missed an opportunity to truly captivate the audience. Now, now I say that telling you that this is an example of Jonathan Harvey doing something that does and does not play to that particular um, uh, trope. Okay, the idea with that that cello harmonic sounding like a mistake. What does that do? What is breaks everybody's attention on their own? life and pulls them onto the stage because if you think that's a mistake where does your attention immediately go so this, yeah to the stage it immediately goes to the ensemble 
Yeah. Um, and it's not done in such a way that would seem obvious, like the piece is obviously beginning. It is done like half-heartedly. Is that a good way to say that? <laughs> you know, there's that Downton Abbey, uh, th- like three of the Downton Abbey actors were on one of the U.S. late night shows at one point, and they were Americanizing one of the scenes. <laughs> They're all speaking in an American, an American accent, accent. <laughs> and um, and trying to like make it more contemporary. And one of them just pipes up and goes, "Hey guys, hey guys!" And that's kind of how this piece starts to me. <laughs> hey guys, I was gonna play a harmonic here. Can you pipe down? <laughs> oh, that's perfect. So, so, so I I agree with you, Rob. That in in this particular like it doesn't it doesn't follow the letter of that law but at the same time it has the essence of that idea at its core where it is it is doing its damnedest to kind of engage you in a way that that pulls you in or just completely smacks you in the face i mean i think it's uh, you know how how many how many thousands of pieces have started out you know, with the strings entering from nothing or the clarinet entering from nothing or the whatever entering from nothing. And then it just like stays there. I didn't say it wasn't cliche. <laughs> oh, it's a huge cliche. <laughs> what I'm saying is, is that I love composers that take cliches and flip them a little bit. Yes. You know, yeah. like yes. he's he's totally playing on that enter from nothing garbage um that so many people do um uh but he does it in such a i don't know i i i've just never heard a piece do that like almost kind of start with a uh, excuse me you know Mm -hmm. yes Yes. so pardon me we're gonna begin now yeah, yeah yeah exactly yeah um but you know at the same at the same time i do feel that this type of piece can handle that type of beginning i mean if you're gonna do that for a three minute composition oh god you yeah. you, you yeah. might not you it might not be felt in the same way but this is a fifth this is a concert length work yep. yeah yeah i mean it it has the just by the fact that you sit down with your program, open it up, and this is the only thing on the program. <laughs> yeah. You know, it has the weight. There is a, like, dra- already, there's a drama to that. Yeah. It, well, it, and it's, it's built in. You know that it's almost always going to be the first and last thing on a program, and that should shift the way you address the beginning. Because you don't always know, when you write a piece, how it's going to be used. You, right, you yeah. think you do, but then somebody buries in the middle of the, you know, first half and no one remembers it by the end of the concert. You just go out and you drink afterwards. Yep. But with this, <laughs> you absolutely know that your audience was coming from dinner or swim practice or a piano lesson that went awry or whatever. And they sit down and they're like, oh, my God, my life. And they're in their seats and they're still thinking about everything they've forgotten about. What gets them into the piece? Hey, guys. (laughs) (laughs) Perhaps, perhaps. I'm I'm not saying that every piece has to start that way if it's going to open a concert. But it's definitely one of those things where, you know, if you're going to lead the audience from their life into your music... 
I think like reaching out a hand is much better than slapping someone across the face. And I know that metaphor was just used a minute ago, so that's why I'm bringing it back. No, I, I, that's that's <laughs> the idea. I and and I I I I double down by saying it is just uh it is just a metaphor in that there are several ways that you can do either of those successfully and to various gradations. And there's a whole host of ways you can do it just just poorly. <laughs> Uh-huh. And then there's also everything in between those, which I just think is not worth your time to consider. Like if if you don't want your piece to start meh, because it's not going to get better from that. <laughs> it's not going to get better from there. <laughs> That's what I when I see right. a mezzo forte or a mezzo piano, I look at it and I go, oh meh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know. I mean. <laughs> Rob no. doesn't want to edit all of his pieces now, Andrew. No kidding. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, there's. I say Mark this Apple knowing bomb. that I have I have started pieces with Mezzo Dynamics and regretted it. <laughs> <laughs> there's the Mark Applebaum, you know, thing in pre-composition about how to end a piece, and you know, like there are only two. Basically, <laughs> there are only two ways to end a piece. You know, so there are only two ways to begin and only two ways to end. And he proves he proves that an interesting. <laughs> Uh, an an interesting ending does exist that uh, that are in between those. Mm-hmm. So, so I I don't know. I get what you're saying. Yeah, I get I I get the like. Okay, you just put it there because you didn't know what to do. Yeah, <laughs> but I do think like in the hands of a, prof- a someone who has a a really meaningful idea. Oh, let's just say it. Jonathan Harvey in the hands of Jonathan Harvey. <laughs> I didn't say that, but well, anyway, let's, all right. F- fair enough. It is. It's true. Um, so <laughs> I'm glad you know, that this piece didn't do what I thought it was going to do. Cause I don't think I could hand, could have handled an hour of exploring one pitch at a time. I'm glad it was like the first movement with yeah. some deviation. And it, it like harkens back to the, it's, Chelsea, right? Yeah, the Quattro Yeah. yeah. Four pieces, each has a single note, and it's all about the orchestration and the color, which is... Well, yeah, but it's not not just that piece. Yeah, yeah. No, 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 but... The majority of of his output is like that. (laughs) (laughs) The first four string quartets, you know, like that one, some orchestra pieces. Um, But, but, you know, yeah, it can't help... Uh, for anybody who knows those pieces, you can't help immediately hear the opening of this, and you're like, "Oh, this is kind of Chelsea like." But but it's it's uh, it's as if it's Chelsea with a much more satisfying sense of pitch space because uh, you get those really low frequencies uh, in, in the, in the electronics, electronics. Yeah, yeah, exa- yeah. exactly. <laughs> and and also these really really high overtones of the fundamental, if we can call it that. That's kind of being uh, intoned in 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 these ways, um, and it's quite lovely to hear. Not only that that it's like uh, dialing Chelsea's concept up, where you take this idea of timbral transfer of this this note being passed in kind of a a Klangfarben melody esque way although there's no melody it's just this pitch but you have this whole spectra that's that's kind of being explored yeah i mean this i think this first movement was the entire reason that um this piece was suggested to me uh in the in the way back times to listen to (laughs) because 
<laughs> I was studying. <laughs> I was studying with Kurt Stallman, and mm-hmm. I was writing. Uh, I believe at that time it would have been my piece uh, for string quartet and computer called The Gate. And the first movement is a little <laughs> single pitchy. We've little all bit. been there. That's right. <laughs> now, there was a purpose for it. You know, it wasn't just like, oh, I'm going to do uh, timbral things because that's how you start a piece. Like, it was in service of the story I was trying to tell. And it wasn't only one pitch, it was multiple. One pitches. Um. <laughs> <laughs> but there was a part, there was a point. And, and he, uh, while I was uh, writing this, taking lessons with him, he said, he su- you know, you, you should really go listen to Jonathan Harvey's Bhakti for, for that purpose. And it's funny to me now, because now I listen to it and I'm like, wow, that's, that's the movement I could probably skip if there was one. <laughs> isn't that, isn't that funny how that works? You know? You know, yeah. So, so, uh, yeah. So th- that's the first movement. Now, the second movement, uh, I was as I was listening to this, um, and I think I brought this up to you guys last week because I think there was some talk of Messian at some point in the conversation last week. Oh, most likely. Oh, you you guys were uh, falling asleep during uh, Tarangalila. Tarangalila. That's yeah. where we left off. Yes, we were. When last yes. we watched, we were falling asleep. Why does this yes. podcast always devolve into pieces that we've fallen asleep during? <laughs> Doesn't always. Because just... you're on it. Oh. <laughs> 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 no, you you that's that's your that's your move. You fall asleep during pieces. Um, <laughs> hey, everybody's got a skill. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the second the second movement, I was thinking about this, and I was thinking about the reason why I don't like so much of Messian's music. Mm. And the second, this second movement really reminds me of Messian in a way. And it, in his program notes, um, he was, uh, saying, let me find it. Something. I don't know where it is. It doesn't matter. Anyway, he was, um, that was, that was very mellifluous. That was gorgeous, Rob. Good word. Um, (laughs) It was talking about this idea of suspension. Maybe it wasn't in the program notes, but um, maybe it was um, in in an article or or something more about the piece. But it was this idea of suspension that you're never – we shouldn't consider the harmony as dissonant over a fundamental base, but rather – that was the program note. Oh, this was the program note. Yeah. 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 But it's rather like – it's uh, you know st- structurally put together, and it's just kind of floating. Right. And the second movement really is that I think you know there's all of this high, just clustery chords that are m- moving so fast that you never really get a sense of harmony. Even it's more it's more like you're just listening to. Uh, very specifically defined timbres, almost. You, you know what's really funny about this? I have to. I'm, I'm pulling out my notebook and and I'm proving it to everybody on the podcast. No one listening can see this, but I'm waving my notebook furiously. Um, so I, I, so I can sec- I, I can confirm. You're attesting. Excellent. Thank you. Um, As I uh, go for more whiskey. <laughs> 
the when I listen to a piece of music for the first time, I very often have you know a scrap of paper or a notebook or something, and I and I jot down things, and and these things are not necessarily meant to be profound. They're just things that pop into my mind, almost like looking uh, at an inkblot and taking a Rorschach test and and just uh, the first things that kind of bubble to the surface. And so invariably, my comments or criticisms reflect probably more on me than the piece itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But after listening to the second movement of uh, Bhakti here, this is what I wrote down. Quote, this is everything I wish Babbitt's ensembles for synthesizer was. End quote. <laughs> There's far All too right. many people being mean to Babbitt this week. No, I'm not okay with it. I'm I'm not being mean to Babbitt necessarily. It's I I that's one of those <laughs> pieces. That's one of those pieces by Milton Babbitt that I really want wholeheartedly to love. And I love aspects of it, but the thing that always gets me is the timbral. Uh, uh, shifts mm-hmm. and characteristics, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, he's writing it for the RCA Mark II, and there's a whole, it, it's literally titled Ensembles, plural, for synthesizer, right? Right. But if we, if we take a listen, are we going to listen to the second, let's just a little sure, snippet. Sure, let's, let's just listen to the, like, the first few seconds of it. So, You'll get so, the sense, because it is the tape that starts out the second movement. Exactly. Yeah. You know what I think it is? Listening to it a second time here, I'm I'm entirely certain it has everything to do with the sense of duration and and pulse and kind of uh, when you listen to ensembles for synthesizer, you don't get any of that. Right. Because Babbitt would have been not only dealing with uh with pitch in a serial way, but he would have had some kind of rhythmic device. Yeah, I'm pretty um, sure that's one of the time point pieces, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So and this one is just like straight 16th notes, you know? But you get this really wonderful shift in the timbral kind of color and, and you know, the the tunings, I think, are even in, in kind of very, very interesting uh, uh, non-Western kind of uh, yeah. uh, temperaments. And so that all for me is like, oh, yeah, this is this is that was the that was the comment I made. This is everything I would have wanted ensembles for synthesizer to be. <laughs> <laughs> I also think that that the. the- temperament is off so subtly it's a little bit like um one of the pieces we've talked about in the past and you accidentally hit play on earlier today uh, fagerland uses harmonies that are for the most part traditionally tuned but he'll stick like second trumpet on a quarter tone yeah, and so just... the whole color of the chord shifts just slightly and it's really hard to find what to pinpoint what's going on that makes it feel just slightly off because he's only given it to you in one player's part out of all, I don't know, whatever. Just something, something to make it shimmer. shimmer. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's, that's confidence right there (laughs) that, that you can, uh, that you can stick it in the second trumpets part and first of all the player's <laughs> going to play it 
And second of all, that I feel like I feel like other people would overwrite that, and then it would yeah. be a completely different thing. It would be a disaster yeah. in yeah. some way. Oh yeah, I, I that's some, yeah. what, what I always say is uh, uh, every composer should feel like every piece they hear they would change in some way for better or worse. Very often, mine is going to be worse. For, for worse. But yeah. <laughs> so so continuing with the microtonal idea, let's let's go. Let's talk about the third movement because I think I that's it. where microtones and uh, alternate tuning systems and this whole idea of cycles mm-hmm. of the piece really comes into play. So, I mean, the first the first movement and the second movement are kind of like, well, here's one thing, and here's now something completely different. For me, I feel like the piece proper starts in the third movement. The third movement, like mm-hmm. this has been an introduction, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. In the third movement, this is where the meat of the what he's exploring uh, really comes into play and this is where we start getting the things that we start hearing again mm-hmm. now the the second movement kind of makes its way back into the work here and there but i don't think as prominently as the third movement does so maybe let's uh what do you want to do do you want to listen to all of it how long is the third movement that's like five minutes yeah, let's just get a let's get a halfway maybe. All right. Get a halfway point. Well, little halfway. Thank you. 
Yeah, you know, when I listen to this, I feel like this is uh, expressionism or modernism through a spectralist filter. I have a fun mm. term for this. Oh. It's, it's got the wacky 1980s woodwind noodleys going on. <laughs> oh my god, okay. Woodwind so noodleys. <laughs> I love the wacky 1980s woodwind noodleys so much. <laughs> um, this, so... I'm, I'm, as we were listening, I was really trying to pinpoint what draws me to this writing so much. And I think his, I think Harvey's writing in general, but um, what this was written in 1982. Yeah. Consider what else was, um, you know, like big orchestral works or what was kind of going on then. I mean, you've, minimalism has really hit the hit its stride scene right yeah 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 then you've got the like glassy crystalline textures of you know crumb and uh that other guy that i'm forgetting because i don't really like his music schwantner Schwantner. there it is Yes, you're talking late 70s, early 80s that, yes, the Schwantner chord is alive and well. Yes, yes. So all of that stuff is going on. And the, I, I think the reason I am drawn to this so much is because it's purposefully a little bit messy, but yeah. in the mm. best way possible. You know, it has those those just those little grace notes here and there and a note really never ends it it always has like a little like a almost like a grace note on the end of the note instead of on the beginning of the note or yeah, something and often and, elides into the next kind of yeah and yeah. and and a single pitch is never is, is like everyone is not doing the same thing you know the the oboist is playing a timbre trill on the same note as everyone else. It's like everything is just alive. And that's why I think I am not really drawn to a lot of the music from this time period because it just seems so dead. It doesn't it doesn't quite do that. Yeah. You know, the um so this this for me in terms of texture kind of oscillates between a strictly monophonic texture and then this heterophonic texture that you're talking about where more or less they're all doing the same thing but there's you know there's a little lag in terms of rhythm or a little ornamentation yeah. from one voice which is a very electroacoustic or electronic music e kind of thing to to be considering yeah, but yeah. it's not at that time. Because what strikes me about this True. is that I don't get a dated sound about this entire piece. And part of it is I don't think that many people were writing for 15 instruments and quadraphonic tape. I, yeah. I, I probably don't know my history well enough of that time period. But this is so, this strikes me as a really large ensemble. Yeah, so the only, the only other piece that I can really think of that has this size of ensemble with electronics would be Boulez. Uh, well, doesn't that fit? <laughs> Raypons, you know, because yeah. He, yeah. Yeah. Harvey was uh, invited to Earcam to write Correct. this piece at Boulez's invitation. Mm, For okay. Ensemble Intercontemporaine, right? Yes, I yeah, believe right? so. I, th- I, th- sure. I, th- I feel like I feel like if anyone's going to do it, I think Ensemble Intercontemporaine is probably going to be yeah. there. 
But right but, at the same time, uh, Boulez from 81 to 84 is writing his uh, his piece that is basically this same, I mean, not this mm-hmm. instrumentation. His, his right. ensemble is a bit bigger, but uh, but another large ensemble electronics evening length work. Yeah, yeah. I think there's another movement. It might even be the next one. Um, I'm not entirely sure. Whatever one starts off with mostly trills that sound like we could go Stravinsky's direction or we might go somewhere else. I think um, it is the fourth movement, yeah. Yeah, I, that one struck me as like you're getting a really electronic processed sound acoustically on purpose. And he's one of the earliest instances where I really recognize that. You know, it's not yeah. about setting the different sounds apart from the ensemble it's how to make them all blend and that's another thing that kind of transcends decade in in this particular piece for me mm-hmm. i like it a lot more than i like most 1980s contemporary music yeah. of this vein <laughs> you, you know while while the fourth movement is lovely and i say this as someone who loves algorithmic composition and and process-based things and aleatorism uh the the aleatoric nature of movement four makes me want to listen to the whole thing but i'm actually more interested in movement five yeah yeah so i think what we just heard in movement three um when i listened to this without the score I had an idea and then I listened to it with the score and I was blown <laughs> away by how wrong my idea was. But uh, so let's let's maybe just listen to the first uh, minute or so of movement five. Yeah. If you were listening like me and thought, oh, well, that's just kind of a retreading of movement three, material-wise, correct. If you were thinking that the melody you heard from movement three was being played by live instruments, wrong. (laughs) That is the tape. That is the tape that's doing that. Everything that that you heard that is not that melodic thing that you heard from measure three those are the live parts. Isn't that fascinating? Oh. Right? <laughs> so, so, I mean, this, obviously he's, you know, we're listening to it in stereo right now. I would wah, assume wah. if, I mean, if, if this were me and I was composing this piece, I, and, and I knew that I was going to take that melodic idea and place it in the electronics, I would want uh, space, uh, spatialization to play a role. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
you know, you're taking something from what was on stage and now putting it surrounding the audience, mm-hmm. you know, so I'm, I, I have to imagine that maybe is what he did. <laughs> I can it's- never know for sure until I see it live, which probably will be never. Oh man, we got to make this happen somehow. Oh, that'd be awesome. Do not look at me. Uh, <laughs> there's no bassoon. No <laughs> <laughs> you know, I I wrote down as my uh, as my little uh, one off set of comments here. Um, you know, as as far as the the gesture goes and the, and the writing, this is probably the closest movement to Boulez for me. I I, mm-hmm. I listen to this movement and I hear a lot of Boulez coming through, and and to some extent Messiaen too. If we think about the last mm-hmm. movement of the quartet for the end of time, you mm-hmm. know, where we're dealing with these kind of uh, everybody playing more or less the same kind of thing in the ensemble and the electronics, you know, all kind of pitching together to one gestural end. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and it, it even kind of calls back to the second movement, you know, it's the synthesizers mm-hmm. now becoming the ensemble, the ensemble, mm-hmm. um, you know, that kind of, motor rhythm all all just chord 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 constantly shifting never never rooting in anything always floating yeah but yeah that i i just couldn't believe that when i was uh looking at the score so that tells you that i mean if if we're talking about you know like when we were saying at the beginning you know don't look at the score and try to recreate this sound yeah, mm-hmm. he is using instrumental sounds in the tape. Yep. Um, to augment the ensemble, to kind of bring the tape and the ensemble into cohesion. Yes. Um, so the tape can be many, many different things in this piece. And and I think that's what Jamie pointed out as being a significant strength uh, for this piece, where where you have something that very much is indistinguishable at times you're you're really legitimately not sure what's making that sound right well and i think i don't know about the two of you but there was a stigma in some music tech classes if you used a sound that was too closely resembling the ensemble that you should have just had more instruments why would you need electronics if you're going to just replicate their sound? But I think in this particular case, when you're in a quadraphonic setup and you can fling it around the audience as well, <laughs> um, then uh, it it you are using it in a way that you can't do with more performers. Unless yeah. you're... Is it, it, was it Chelsea that did the 104 saxophone pieces too? Sharino. Sharino did. Sharino did the... I don't know why these two get just combined in my brain and they glom onto one another. They're all um, Italians. <laughs> I mean, I, I oh, confuse Chirino with Dalla Piccolo all the time. So. <laughs> I think it's the closeness of the name and that the fact that I got really obsessed about 10 years ago with both of them. Um, <laughs> but um, Chirino has that 104 saxophone piece. Yeah, because it's like a saxophone quartet with 100 like antiphonal oh saxophones like wandering. So we yeah. saw it live. At the oh BGN Music Festival. I, yeah. And the guy in front so of me wouldn't cool. shut up. I had to lean forward and be like, do not talk anymore. Uh, no, now, um. now, now, wait, wait, wait. Jamie was, uh, and I don't want to necessarily say this is not characteristic of you, but, <laughs> may, but maybe uh, you were very sweet about it. You basically said. <laughs> I leaned forward and I said, please refrain from talking. 
This, and that's all I said until the end of the piece. Until the end of the piece. And you said, thank you so much. This is probably the only time in my life where I'm going to hear this live. And he said, yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> thank God. Thank God. Yeah, he was Simon's dad. I'm sorry about that, dude. But um, but it was really cool because the, the saxophone quartet was up on platforms. Uh-huh. Spatialized around the audience, in within yeah. the audience, yeah. and so there's you know one point where it's just like slap tonguing, second, third, just, fourth, oh. slap tonguing in a circle over oh, wow. and over again, while there's a hundred saxophonists or people who had a saxophone to use, um, you know, <laughs> breathing through it and fluttering their fingers. So or, bring out your saxes. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, but. Uh, you know, unless you're going to have a small army of secondary instrumentalists, um, <laughs> you know, how often does that piece get performed? The 104 flute piece, I'm sure, gets performed more often because, you know, that's like two people's studios. Um, <laughs> oh. <laughs> I'm sorry. Again, the bassoonist in the room has no sympathy for those who get to teach their entire living with <laughs> 50 fluties. Um, <laughs> I cap out at about... 14 bassoonists in a city <laughs> but uh no yeah th- it it is using the electronics in a way that is both something that we've been told not to do <laughs> just add more people oh, and yet is really successful because you can't always do that well there's that um there's that earl brown piece times five times five yeah mm. yeah for five musicians and then five speakers so instrumental sounds coming from the speakers and i i believe i can't remember but i'm I, i'm i i remember i think that was meant to be spatialized as well like mm. even the instrumentalists are surrounding the audience i believe that is accurate but i can't remember for sure yeah so i mean <clears throat> i i tend to with with my students you know i never have a problem if they're going to you know, even if it's just a purely fixed media piece, if they're going to use instrumental sounds, I just never want them to use like MIDI. Oh God! You know, <laughs> like or or sample libraries. It's like, well, if you want to use that sound, go get a microphone and go record that sound. Yeah. You know, yeah. but don't use don't use this prepackaged stuff because I can't remember where I read it. Uh, it might have been. I think it's the Curtis Rhodes book. Uh, composing electronic music but he had he had a thing about that in his book just basically saying like look if you use generic sounds you're writing a generic piece right exactly you know? yeah like that's what it's gonna be you're not gonna have the nuance you're not gonna have the character that comes from recording something real might um, i might i go back to my quibble with beginning pieces if you begin a piece with mezzo forte you're writing a generic piece <laughs> Right. I'm still not conceding, but I'd like to leave it. <laughs> so, so yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, anyway. I, I have a note in my uh, I have a note in my book here that that says Jamie likes movement six. Um, I, I don't necessarily know if we want to listen to much of six because obviously we're, we're not going to get through the whole spoiler alert, folks. We're not going to get through the whole 50 minutes. <laughs> and I do like movement eight more than six. Well, I think all of us have a have a an affinity for movement eight. 
Yeah. So uh, so let's just talk about movement six. Movement six is just kind of another like really big flurry of activity, kind of similar um, to movement four in a way. Um, but at the at the end of it, um, at the end of movement six, it, everything just keeps rising, rising and rising and yeah. rising, and eventually it just goes to electronics, and it's just, it's as if a high pass filter were being applied to everything, and we get up into that. 10,000, 15,000 hertz of just like you feel the sound more than, you know, more than you hear it. And we just rise and rise and rise. And I feel like, you know, like I said, I think one and two uh, movements, one and two are kind of introductory to the piece. And the piece itself really begins with three, four, and five. It seems like with six, that's a transition into another big section of the piece beginning with seven. And then you find the real, like, you know, uh, the, the real meat of this next part of the piece in eight. Yeah. Because, because as we, as you're talking about, you know, the rise into seven, seven, I basically have written down all the bells. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's very percussive. It's a lot of electronics. And you, um, and you, repeated, and you get a lot of, yeah. Yo, go ahead. No, go ahead. It's a lot of stasis and suspension and hovering, and it 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 kind of is some of those like kind of glassy textures that exactly. I talked about not really liking. Um, mm. But uh, also, there's just such a deliberateness mm-hmm. of movement seven that I can kind of get around it in a way. I don't know. I, you- I just I, I tend to forgive a little bit more. You can't like every part of a movie. At some point, you got to suspend true. disbelief, right? And so this is an hour-long piece. And if if coming into movement seven has got this very, very, uh, you know, gesturally strong ascension, and then seven is kind of this moment where we have to suspend disbelief for you, Rob, I think... I think we can we can say it's okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think so. Well, let's get on to 8. Jamie, did let's you want to talk about it before we listened or just No, let's listen, listen to it. It's awesome. Let's listen to it. I want to stop it right there, but I I want to uh, go ahead a little bit in the movement because there is some really awesome harp writing towards the end of it. Mm. Oh, yeah. Let's do it. 
Oh, so good. <laughs> it really is. This is a base clef playground. Yeah. Yeah, there's no reason Jamie of, likes this. That's part of the reason. If there was a movement where bassoon would actually be heard in this, if it were part of it, <laughs> movement eight is where I would be. Because <laughs> it's basically like bass clarinet, low harp, uh, trombone. Or trombone. Yeah, yeah, trombone. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and they're actually doing interesting things. Which is so <laughs> rare again, for us. <laughs> and again, you know, about half of this movement is like half of what you're hearing is electronics. Mm-hmm. Even mm-hmm. though it does sound like instrumental sounds, it's it's like the majority of the percussion is electronics. Yeah. And that kind of like glissy kind yeah. of sound, that's that's in the electronics too. Could you do that again? I I wrote down it's this is kind of like a bass version of like the ligety metronomes or the or even like the third movement of his uh, chamber concerto you know the very like uh, um, it has been so long since I've listened to that I it's very it's very metronomy okay (laughs) you know so but it it just has that kind of pulsing thing like transferring from uh trombone to bass clarinet Mm -hmm. but even that's in the electronics you know yeah so it's like yeah but yeah so good Mm. and this this material comes back in a big way in the 11th movement as well so it's like we um these three movements, seven, eight, and nine, um, kind of form this little mini uh, arc, I think, mm-hmm. starting yeah. out with like very glass, glass-like and bell-like sounds, and then going to this like deep, uh, really organic, uh, rhythmic thing. And then the ninth movement is just, what did you say before we got on? You said it was like Space oh, Cave. Or space something. Cave. <laughs> yeah. And well, that was funny for me because you had said, you know, you you enjoy many aspects of the ninth movement and you're not one for that 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 kind of, I uh, it, it's not really reverberant necessarily in this piece. Maybe that's why you like it. Uh, but but it does have this kind of Space Cave atmosphere to <laughs> you, to, for lack of a better term. Yes, I think... Okay, here's why I think I like it. Because even in my notes, I, I was writing down notes for each movement. And I on movement movement nine. Before we get on move on to this, do you want to talk about movement eight anymore? I mean, we just kind of glossed over it. We did. We we did. It's just awesome. It, um I mean I don't know. Nothing else to say. It's awesome. It, it's awesome. Uh, it, it, I think the bass player's playground. Bass player's playground. The rhythmic kind of impulse that's going on. The activity of it. I, I think it all. I don't necessarily know if it culminates. I don't. I don't think that's the right word in this piece because it's so long. Because this piece is so big, I don't think you can have one like this is the moment in the piece. I think that's. Oh, I disagree. I, oh. <laughs> And I'll tell you but why. It, but, but I don't think it's movement eight but, either. But I don't think it's movement eight. No. Right. Okay. I, I agree Which actually would make a lot eight. of sense if we're doing our golden ratio everything here. But um, but I think this is just a... The development of this movement is is interesting to me because we needed this type of rhythmic motion in, in this particular point, right? I, exactly. I think, I think 
without it, this is the point where some people phase out during this performance and never come back to us, even if there is a big moment. You know, you have to keep... So we need this We need this, yeah. but the we shift... We need this now. We need this now. But the shift from the beginning of this I piece to the end... I was about to, to make end, a Batman analogy right there. Just the, It's not the texture we deserve. It's, the texture, it's not <laughs> the texture we need. It's the texture we deserve. I don't know. <laughs> oh, boy. I'm sorry, I interrupted, and you were you on did, a. You did, and then I went bill. into it a, a space cave of my own to wonder why I married you. But that's a different conversation <laughs> with a different third party observing. <laughs> Are you saying I might not be qualified for that? <laughs> I haven't. I, I don't have the right doctorate for that. <laughs> why, gosh, gosh, golly, no, I don't think you do. <laughs> um. If you listen to the first half of Movement 8 and the second half of Movement 8, there's not... I think you could make the case that these were two separate movements unless you hear all of the subtle changes that bring us to the end. Um, yeah. Other than being, you know, a bass player's playground, a bass clef playground, whatever I called it, um, other than it's still kind of living in the basement of our pitch space... Um, I, the change is huge, but he balances it really, really well. Yeah, and it's it's almost it's almost as if the the first half of this uh, movement gets developed later in the eleventh movement, yeah. and the second half of this eighth movement is a transition into the into ninth. Into the ninth, which I mean, in my in my notes for the ninth, I I say this is the one. This is the crux of the whole piece. And I, it, it finally roots itself into something. Hmm. Hmm. And I think that I, the, the, whole, the whole time, you know, in my notes, I'm like hovering, floating, suspension, never rooting itself. And then finally, we in the ninth movement, and then, we get yeah. these humongous hits. Yeah, mm-hmm. that last for a long time. It's stasis, but it's going somewhere. It also has these like big electronic interruptions, which you don't expect. Yes, I, I almost it almost seems like the, uh, this ninth movement is kind of similar to um, uh, Grise uh, partials. Mm-hmm. You know, okay, with its like yeah. repetition. Yeah. of this of this timbre that keeps keeps altering itself and everything but at the same time you know it's it's it is its own thing i would like to listen to maybe the first minute of this um yeah i'm game so we can we can give context to what we're saying <laughs>
So we'll just we'll just. It's so good. <laughs> so good. It's so good. I, yeah. I still I still say that Space Cave is is an apt. <laughs> I think so, but I mean, but after having, I mean, how how much time has elapsed at this? Oh point? my god! At this point, right? Yeah. So yeah, you, we're probably thirty minutes in, and it, it's at least. been. Other than the first movement, it's been a lot of activity, a mm-hmm. lot of continuous, a lot of, you know, kind of in your face stuff. Some, some and to very just strong have, gestures. Yeah. Yeah. And to just have this moment finally of like release almost. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and also, like I said, rooting. And uh, I think that's really important to this to this moment that we realize that we finally feel a fundamental, Mm. you know, we're not suspended anymore. So, so, you know, before we talk about the, uh, I I know we're probably going to skip 10 and we're probably going to skip, uh, uh, 12, um, in, 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 in much to, to, to delve into uh, what we like about 11, uh, and we'll let our listeners kind of explore the piece on their own. I, I do want to say kind of related to that idea of, of self-exploration, I would love to talk about a way to get our students to listen to pieces like this. This is, this is so much the problem with concert-length works. When do you have the opportunity to really listen to them in a sustained kind of critical way in an environment where you are, you know, not thinking about the external world where you can, where you can truly kind of dig into this piece as a composer. Yeah. Um, Cause I know that, you know, a lot of our students, when they, when they're assigned large scale listening like this, even if you have them journal, it's like, did they really do it in one sitting? Did they really take the time to experience the piece? When you do it in class, aren't they really thinking about the 12 assignments that they have to do when they get out yeah. of class? Right? I mean, I mean, there's how do we get students to experience these pieces like this or Haas's in vain or these large mm. like tomes and and do them justice? So, you've heard the phrase "lead a horse to water," right? <laughs> well, I'm trying to make them drink. <laughs> I don't think you can. Oh, yeah. Honestly, so what was education's so education's not just up to the the bunch of us that that stand in front of the room. It's it's also it, it the job of each person in the seat to go exactly. and do exactly. And the next time, the very next time, I hear, oh yeah, well I listened to it. I was doing my math homework. I will <laughs> kick that. And you student didn't listen to it <laughs> out of my studio and say you're not coming back in this door until you have actually fucking listened. However. Now, uh, well, at the same time, it's like I don't, I don't, I don't necessarily um, uh, begrudge them like the fact that they're thinking, their brains are not off, right? They're thinking about all these other things, but it's a disservice to them experiencing the piece, right? So, so I think doing something like this, you really have to want to, and Mm. when. I, th- I can't remember it was first first year second year or whatever but um i think first year of being at rice uh dan zychek composer who we, who we ha- who we have had on the pod sorry <laughs> how you doing third, with that third glass evan williams <laughs> <laughs> uh 
Dan Zajac, who who we have had on the podcast, checking episodes <laughs> like in the 30s or something like that. Um, <laughs> been a while. Uh, he was in the doctoral program, and he was, uh, I think, in his second or third year while I was in my first. Um, he was in his third year while I was in my first. And he just decided one day, like, hey, everyone, uh, I'm going to listen to this piece by Grise. I'm going to listen to Talia. Mm. Um, and I, maybe that wasn't even – no, that wasn't it. He he wanted to listen to uh, Jean-Francois Laporte's mantra. Um, oh, that I'm not like familiar a, with. Oh, buddy. Do I – that's another over drinks, I think. <laughs> nah, no, nah, it really isn't. It really isn't. It's something. It's something to experience, not to dissect. Okay, mm. fair enough. Um, but uh, go listen to it. I won't tell you anything about it, but you should go listen to it. It's like twenty five minutes, um, but it's it's worth it. Um, but he kind of started this tradition of like, I want to listen to this piece in our in our electronic music studio with the good speakers. If you want to come, I'll do it at this time. Mm. And the first week, five of us showed up. And then a couple weeks later, Chris Walzak, also on the podcast, episode Mm -hmm. 10. 10! Wow! Um, I think it was 10. It might have been 9. Anyway, it doesn't matter. He's in the, he's in the, you know. The early stages of the He was the, the first one we had face to face because he was actually in China. In China we were, at the time? He, yeah. and, he and I were heading to Taiwan together. Um, but um, anyway, uh, we got together in his apartment and we listened, uh, we listened to another Grise piece and something else. I can't remember what else it was, but it was just like. It was this informal, hey, let's listen to this because because we want to, you know. And after that, we thought it was such a good idea, myself, uh, Steve Bacicha, Dan Zychek, um, we just decided like, okay, every Friday or it, sometimes Thursday, sometimes Friday, depending on when seminar was a uh, composition seminar, because we wanted to do it in proximity to seminar. We're going to get together. And for an hour, we're going to listen to music. This was completely outside of any class. Mm-hmm. We, you know, no one suggested we do this. We just did it. And I think that kind of stuff has to happen. So you know, that's what for I, a, that for was, a piece like this. Yeah, that was my next thing. So even if there was like faculty suggestion, it would come across as, oh, this is another assignment and it would get kind of compartmentalized in that way, wherein yeah. it just has to be kind of an organic, you need to want to do this. Yeah. And I've kind of, I mean, with my students, I've kind of just tried to be as hands off as I can be in trying to, in just like, I want this to happen. I really, really want it to happen, mm-hmm. and I know that I know that some of my students listen. So, if you're listening, please make it happen. But, <laughs> but I'm not. It's not coming from me, and I'm not going to be there. That would defeat the whole purpose. They need to have a space that is their own, yeah. where they can dive into this. And you know, is it going to be every single student? Absolutely not. It's only going to be the people for whom. Either they feel like there's a necessity 
They need to do this. Or it's going to be, in our case, many times, it was me and Steve kind of peer pressuring people into showing up. (laughs) Oh, now that's, is that surprising? (laughs) Not really. Oh, come on. Because, like, that's not what the two of us did in grad school. Hey, Um, come on over for dinner. Yeah. I'll cook, but you're going to have to listen to some weird shit. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Well, and and this... uh, you know, perhaps, and and maybe I'm just, uh, maybe again, I'm being a little too full of myself and or pedestrian, who knows, could be on either end of the spectrum, but perhaps we are modeling the behavior we would like our students to engage in. This, this maybe not the overdrinks part, but the idea of <laughs> dissecting a piece of music. We can't help that thing. Actually, <laughs> I mean, very, almost all the time after uh, listening Fridays as we called them at Rice, we went to the bar. So <laughs> we listened and then we drank. <laughs> and well, and that's where the the unveiled opinions of the piece that you just heard came out. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, and, I mean, and honestly, in undergrad, when we had we had major semester-long listening assignments from mm-hmm. uh, from our primary teacher, Doc Bolin, we dissected a different section of the Rite of Spring. Every semester. Every semester mm-hmm. for eight semesters straight. And uh, we eventually, by our senior year, we were in the last section. Oh, it's so good. And the five seniors? Five, well, the, the culminating seniors, we got together for like potluck dinners. It wasn't potluck. I cooked every damn thing. Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> it was me and four dudes. I cooked. <laughs> it was Italian dinner. Maybe we, can... we brought rolls. I don't know. Or napkins. <laughs> you did the dishes. And one time you broke your, ri- your rib carrying I a have, dish rack. I literally have a war wound. <laughs> from those <laughs> but, war wounds. But I love it. That led to so many conversations. And I'm pretty sure we didn't just listen to, to the Rite of Spring that year because that would have been a tragic use of our time. Nothing against the Rite of Spring. No, but to only listen to one piece for an entire semester yeah. on Sunday evenings when we were eating pasta. But that's what but that's what has to happen. And as educators, I think we just need to model the behavior, but then leave the space. And and just I, honestly, I like honestly hope that it happens. And if it doesn't, you know, there's there's not a whole lot I think you can do about it because, like you say, if it is, oh, you should do this, it becomes another assignment. Yeah, yeah, and and, uh, that's not what you want. Honestly, you, the the lack of inquisitive inquis- huh. inquisitive nature. Inquisivity. That's what I was trying to say, and it's not it, is it? (laughs) Um, If you're not inquisitive about what's out there, and if you're not constantly pushing the boundary of that circle of your comfort zone, this is how we get an entire canon of a single demographic. Mm. Yeah. Because you know what your teachers taught you and a little bit outside of that based on what your friends also exposed you to. And this is where we start getting that argument that I only listen to good music. No, you only listen to what your teacher and your teacher's teacher and their teacher and then subsequent teachers thought was good music. And at that point in time, all of the gatekeepers were only publishing white men. Uh And so if you actually want to get to understanding good as a multi-level thing, not just what someone told you to think, 
you have to be doing this type of investigation on your own. On your own. And yeah. you have to be going places to find music that are outside of your comfort zone, too. The path to that music has to be as uh, different as the music is. Otherwise, mm-hmm. you're just you're just repeating more of same. And that's when we get the, oh, I only listen to good music. No, you don't. <laughs> no, you certainly that's, don't. That's such a bro answer, too. <laughs> I have uh, Dale Trumdor. Trum- crap. How, how do you say your last name? Trumbador? Trumdor? Something like that. Um, from Dale. LA. Yes. Um, Dale, I have her response to one of those statements hanging on my bulletin board at school. Yeah. It is the first thing students see when they're waiting to have a meeting with me, which and is what was it? That that's a bullshit answer. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I mean, more, more or less. Uh, more ba- or ba- less. Yeah. Uh, uh, maybe we'll post that in the in the uh, yeah I, SoundCloud. Yeah, you know, the Institute for Composer Diversity made it a shareable JPEG. Yeah. Uh, for a reason, and because it, that that statement gets tossed around so many bro dude groups that it's nice to have a response that you can call up very quickly. Anyways. We just took well, a tangent. Well, that was a tangent, but and I, it spurred onto another tangent. But uh, no, I, I think we were on our third tangent when I, I just finished think, there. I think that was a necessary kind of segue because I, I am legitimately concerned. This is a long piece, and for any of our listeners who are still listening, thank you. Uh, and I think it brings us to the eleventh sec, the eleventh movement. Who but knows I what section? I had a question before all of that. You just kind of took off, but I have a question what? for Rob about the. Ninth movement. Is this that pinnacle movement for you? You said that you thought yes. that there is a big moment. So you yeah. think nine is the moment of the piece. I think nine is the moment of the piece. I think it's where it achieves itself. You know, we've been going to, we've, we've been on this trajectory. We start with just single pitch. We mm-hmm. go through melodic ideas. We go through aleatoric ideas. We go through the, the, the timbral, like, you know, sweeping up and mm-hmm. uh, like sweeping everything away and out of our brains. And we have this like all these organic ideas. And then all of a sudden this just boom. And we get this repeat, like the ninth movement is, how long is it? Um, I'm going to look it is around six minutes ish um and i mean you know that's not really saying much because a lot of these movements are like in the four to five movement or or four to five minutes um but a lot of the movements are also you know variable in what they're doing the ninth movement does this thing yeah Mm. and only this thing and i feel like it's you know, I, me- I mentioned the the piece Mantra by Jean-Francois Laporte earlier. I feel like this is where you reach the mantra <laughs> of the piece, <laughs> you know, like, yeah. and, and I, I, you know, it, it's, uh, this is the um, getting to the, getting to the core of, you know, the, the title of, of the piece, Bhakti, Devotion, Love, Love of God. You know, hmm. this is this is where like, you know, you're intoning the uh, the 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 like the prayer bowl or, right. or or something like that. This this is where that that devotion, that ritualistic uh, 
idea of the piece really comes out for me. It comes to focus. So I really and like that idea of of then you know you you mentioned all of the floating adjectives uh, mm-hmm. before movement eight, and movement eight is really not only is it really fun to listen to is really cool for me, but it's also the final preparation for this big moment. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And so it, it's, it's not as rooted as nine, but it is digging those roots in and it's saying, yeah. it, you know, we're like, well, I am preparing for this moment. Um, so no, yeah. no, I agree with Rob. Sorry, Andrew. No, that's, I know that's a great point. That's, the a, that's a great point. I had not thought about it like that, but you, you're absolutely right. Like just as six prepares us for seven, mm-hmm. eight really prepares us for nine. Yeah. 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 That's great. I mean, this is another thing. Like if you want to talk about wanting students to think a certain way, movements as preparation right? for major structural points. Yes. Uh, there's adults I know that don't think about it this way. <laughs> <laughs> Here's my sonata form. I'm <laughs> just... Child, what are they Irish? No. What was that accent? <laughs> that was Here's not my an Irish. <laughs> I, uh, it was not. It was just goofy at American. The, at the risk of <laughs> at the risk of pulling some Jamaican back out. Uh, um, but um, that w- what the other thing that struck me as the two of you are talking, Rob, you you were kind of listing an encyclopedic set of of techniques and and things that were happening in the previous movements. The thing that I love about this piece, it doesn't feel like an ex, an encyclopedic exploration of stuff. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Because there's nothing worse to like drudge through than a, and now it's time for the multiphonics. You know, those types of pieces yeah. where it's mm-hmm. just, it's not... It doesn't seem organic. And I know people have an issue with the idea of organic unity or something that's kind of Shankarian. Some some people really do. Um, but 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 the idea I don't talk to those people. <laughs> <laughs> they are not our friends, apparently. Um, the, no, the the idea though that 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 things feel Nothing really feels out of place in this piece for me, which is which is something because I again I don't believe in perfect music, and I'm not saying this is a perfect piece, but there is a logical continuity from start to finish that I really appreciate. Good. Yeah. Well, yeah, it also it doesn't good. feel like I have to write a 12-page paper. Oh God, I'm only on page seven. I feel like that's when the, those like encyclopedic <laughs> techniques get pulled out. Is when you're like, oh my God, I have an hour-long commission. E gads, what do I do? No, he th- like the whole concept. This was built from the concept up, and you can feel it in its development. Or the instead concept of- down, I suppose. Why? I don't know if you go from the. Con- do you go from? Are you? Oh, you're thinking of it as rooted. See, I think about it as the concept down. See, when I have a conversation, there's organic unity as well. <laughs> are, are, Andrew, are you are you you're talking about like top down, bottom up approach? Like exactly. top down is concept, macrocosm, into, microcosm. Oh, well, right, I'm talking right. about and like the, pyramid. Gotcha. Yeah. The the foundation yeah. of the pyramid right. is I see. I see. the concept. I see. I get what and you're saying. The Got timber it. and dynamics are the tippy tippy top. Yeah. <laughs> The tippy tippy top. Shut up. <laughs> I've been watching a lot of British shows. I'm getting weird accentuations in very odd places. <laughs> I am having a Maggie Smith marathon. It's all Harry Potter and Downton Abbey here. <laughs> and watch you know, out for my your syllables on the next podcast. Yeah, yeah. No. <laughs> no. What is a weekend? <laughs> well, okay. So uh, maybe we should, uh, I, 
I'm really satisfied with uh, that delving into the ninth movement, particularly because I thought it was like, and and you know we talked about this on the last one. This it's mostly electronics. It's very ca- space cavey, and it's totally something that I wouldn't like. And yet, in this piece, I really like it because it's what you need at this mm-hmm. moment yeah. in the piece. And I feel like he's been, you know, he's been doing that all along. You know, it's he's he gives you what you need when you need it. Um, so I think like the the pacing and the ordering and the uh, and and the sequence of ideas is is just really really good in this piece. So yeah, this let's is, let's move on to the eleventh movement. That sounds which, like a good idea. Uh, we're skipping over the tenth. If you're interested, go listen to it. Um, <laughs> and we're gonna skip over the t- the last one too. If you're because we don't want to spoil it for you. Well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> there's been a spoiler alert in in effect the entire time. So let's let's just listen to the beginning of the eleventh movement. So I wanted to get to that moment because that's where the second movement comes back in, you know, almost direct references, but, uh, you know, just kind of almost like a cloud or a mist of the second movement coming back, you know, not, not the whole thing. And it's just like, it, it comes in and out of focus in a way, but yeah, this kind of hazy referential memory, right? Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. And and very much keeping in line with that, it is a kind of hazy referential memory of the eighth movement. Yeah. Because what we just heard, you know, the the beginning um, with the kind of uh, single tone timbrely repeating itself, you know yeah. that thing, um, and then and then expanding into like the gesture with all of the the notes that kind of the flourish of activity. The thing right. that I like is that each of that's a little envelope, right? That's yeah. a little pocket. Yeah, and I mean, if we compare what this idea was with the eighth movement obviously it's like up two or three octaves or something like that and the timbre is completely changed but it's it's a similar idea i wrote about this that i mean the the my favorite part about this is that like kind of i don't know um uh not the it's like a little tiny lion's roar or something uh, you know, <laughs> you know what, is, what is that instrument why well, I'm, I'm a percussionist i'm a bad percussionist is it a guiro that you're thinking of or is it but a guiro is the yeah 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 never mind never mind no never i'm mind. thinking of the the other one it's in like brazilian music and i can't come up with it i'm a bad percussionist someone will someone will know um, you know, we we pulled the encyclopedia of percussion off my shelves because I had to. Uh, my my office is being renovated at uh, at the Fredonia School no, of Music. Odd. It's being taped over so the heating can be renovated. <laughs> so so I, uh, we have the book around here. If you'd like me to hunt for the, the instrument, no, it's all right. <laughs> this is gonna bother me though. Well, just shout it out when you figure it. P.S. You're gonna have to erase a hiccup from the middle of one of these minutes here where we're listening because it was very much wine happening. Hey, stop it! Wine. <laughs> Not that you could tell with your your floaty impression of a jellyfish. <laughs> it wasn't a jellyfish. That was that, that character from uh, Monsters Inc. The purple one. <laughs> That's funny. I can't remember his name. <laughs> Got it. Quica. Oh, the Quica. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. okay. That's okay. not from Brazil. That's from a MIDI keyboard. No, I'm kidding. No, that's <laughs> I'm joking. Brazil. That was a bad joke. It was a bad oh. joke. <laughs> anyway, um, so that like Quica sound, um, I, I just I just love this. But I wrote in other Harvey pieces, the non-ostinato parts would be the entire show. I think this works so hmm. much better having hmm. something to root into. Wow, that's something is that is something I really find important. <laughs> I had a little mini revelation while I was listening to this piece like the whole like rooting into something. I really that's a big thing for me. I I'm yeah. I'm finding out because I'm I'm, you know, any of the like messian movements of this or messian in general um wow judgy tones coming here we go are you everybody ready fasten not, your seat belts not 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 such a fan um I'm, no but when it like some I, I don't know i think like i i think having something to hang on to is really important I but think, with that with that thing to hang on to with this ostinato that's coming back i love the flute and the oboe writing 
so much. The 1980, what did you call it? 1980s woodwind noodle, noodley. No, yeah, the noodley. Woodwind noodleys. Yeah. Woodwind noodleys. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. I mean, so it's, much. it's not just a 1980s thing, but, um, but it's certainly a huge feature of that decade. Yeah. You, you know what I enjoy probably the most about this piece? And again, I, I can't say with any degree of certainty whether this is true of all of Harvey's music, but this piece in particular for me, um, it carries in all the best elements of composers that I admire. There, there are aspects of Messiaen that I admire, and what uh, Bakhti kind of features are the Messiaen that I think is really strong. So he, he's got strong Messianic influence. That sounds weird. Uh, he's got I think that's strong, something else. <laughs> he's he didn't got, say strong Masonic. He said Messianic. <laughs> Messianic. Uh, he's got strong influences from Boulez for obvious reasons. Yeah. Yep. Uh, but but again, I think he takes in it. Oh man, should I should I do it? Should I do a Harry Potter reference? Oh, is is uh, Jonathan Harvey? Is Jonathan Harvey like the sword of Gryffindor? It only takes in that which you know makes it stronger. Rob's not impressed. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea what you're talking about. Um, so the the idea though is that I'm I'm hearing all of these references to composers that we've talked about Chelsea and Boulez and Messiaen and shouldn't that be everyone's goal? I think that's the crux of the issue. I you think, take all your favorites. You only take your favorite parts of your favorite composers, and that is your style. Well, well that's what Stravinsky meant when he said great composers don't borrow; they steal. And the the crux of that is it's not just a regurgitated form. It's truly, I think, synthesized in yeah. whatever Harvey's voice is. Right. Well, I mean, because Rob has different opinions than I do about what is the best part of... Let's leave Messian alone for a little while. <laughs> I like Messian, okay. It's fine. It's fine. I like about 50-50, so we've got a whole spectrum of Messian love to hate here. Um, but, but okay, let's take Ligeti, a far less contentious okay. opinion hey, yeah, here. We're, we're on board. Okay. Okay, so there are aspects of Ligeti that I would never try to use, but I know that you have. Yep. Like, yep, I don't, fair. I haven't tried to write a four note piece like the first movement of the Bagatelles. Mm-hmm. I think it's cute. It's adorable. I think it's hilarious. I don't do it. Totes adorbs. Totes adorbs. Oh, stop, stop. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure Ligeti but, would love that <laughs> critique. <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to have to tell your sister that, that Rob said don't that do because it. Don't this, do is, it. this is, she and uh-huh. I say this every Thanksgiving. To make Andrew's <laughs> to skin crawl. We just walk crazy. around talking about how, how totes, <laughs> totes adorbs, adorbs things are. her dogs are. Um, anyways, <laughs> but that should be the point of style is to steal what you like. I, I steal different things than from Ligeti than the, either of you do. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've, I've stolen my fair share from Ligeti. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I only, I, I guess I, and I, 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 I would assume that this happens to you guys too. Um, I look at, I look at Ligeti and, and actually Ligeti is a great example because, um, it's, uh, it really gets to, you know, a lot of what I did in the, like compositionally in the last, oh, I don't know, five, six years or something, maybe a little bit before that, but. I look at a composer who I really like, and then I say, well, I really like this, but I wish 
Yes. Yeah. It did this. Yes. And that's what you do. Yeah. Well, you know? and you've you've stolen from this piece in a way that neither of us have because this is the first week of our lives we've listened to it. <laughs> so our music is about to get a little bit more similar to yours, I assume. <laughs> I don't because... I, honestly I don't know because uh I, I I keep coming back to this piece and each time I hear it I I find something new I love I, about it. But isn't that also the hallmark of a piece worth listening to, I think, right? Where you can come back to it again and again and realize, oh, there's another layer here. Or there's well, another aspect. Yeah, it's like last last week when we were talking to Carter and I said, you know, when I was doing my master's degree, I just hated Boulez. <laughs> but now I've I've totally come around to really, really, really liking his music. And it's like every... You know, when I first heard this piece, I was 25. And what did you know, really? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And now I'm 35 and I'm a completely different person. So I like this idea of having those pieces that you just come back to every couple of years, you know, and, and you get something new from them. You know, like, for instance, at 25, I was all about the first movement. That was the shit. (laughs) <laughs> now okay, but, the third and fifth movement are the shit for me you yeah. know isn't that part of the purpose of why we get students to listen to more and more complex pieces though is to raise the the bar on what they're capable of understanding in a piece and if we're not expecting ourselves to do the same then why are we yelling at them to listen to it like we do yeah and and that too my little mic drop oh, your little mic drop my yeah. mic is attached Bop. to the stand it is but it is i would drop it if stand. i could I'm uh, not dropping the God, wine. Please don't <laughs> drop the microphones. Um, or the, the wine. Uh, or the wine. <laughs> the idea that you you kind of, mm, you're almost, uh, it's almost like you're challenging yourself. Like you, you, uh, w- this is what happens with me. So maybe it's not everybody, but this is what happens with me. When I encounter a piece that I have a visceral reaction to where it's like, I do not like this. Yeah. I actually put it on a different list. Because the pieces that I listen to and I go, meh, that almost always just gets, I don't listen to it again. Yeah. But the the piece that I listen to and I'm like gobsmacked by it, I'm like, oh my God, this is brilliant. And the piece that I listen to, which is like, this is absolute utter trash, those go on like equally important lists. And the pieces that I don't like initially, I come back to every now and again. And, and it's this weird experience of, do I like this yet? <laughs> have I have I found a way to meet this piece halfway? Do I do I have a better appreciation now with more musical baggage, with different types of experiences as I, as I've grown older? Uh, and sometimes the answer is no, and it still stays on that list, right? <laughs> Maybe in another five years, I'll come back to it, and and suddenly something will click. I don't know. There's that one saxophone and electronics piece i hope i never hear again seguro goto has a p and i finally i made a note of it because after what the second or third time the fourth time we heard this piece in live performance i was always so excited like every single time every time i was like oh this i I can't wait to hear this every time i'm looking at this piece going i think i know something about this piece and i'm gonna (laughs) like it and And we love the first third of it the piece starts and i'm like yeah this is brilliant and then there's this really really high sustained tone tone for like minutes 
And I'm like, oh God, it's this piece. (laughs) (laughs) Every single time. Yeah, we heard it four times in maybe four years. Yeah. yeah. Um, Because it just kept cycling through the saxophone studio. (laughs) And and I was just like, oh, I'm really excited. Oh, shit. It's this thing again. That one lives on a very separate list as well. I mean, I think that. That one's. That one's in solid, solitary, solitary. I I think that so often it's easy to just say like, oh, you hear a piece and you don't like it and you just kind of write the composer off. Yeah, that's unfortunate. Um, And just like you, when I really don't like something... I might, you know, I, I've I've been training myself for years to say, if I don't like something, did I do the work? You know, <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Like, did I did I listen with a with an open mind, and did I go to where the piece was, and all the, these other questions? And if I say no to any of those, like, okay, I'm gonna give the piece another chance. But at the same time, I also think it's important, like. Like with Stravinsky or like with uh, like I've done with um, other composers um, like Boulez, uh, to be perfectly honest, you know, the first piece of Boulez that I was ever exposed to was Structures 1A. And Jesus Christ, I still hate that piece. <laughs> oh my. That's I don't I don't think that's a gateway piece to Boulez. To be it fair. is not. <laughs> It is a door slamming in a face kind of piece. I mean, I would listen to A Claw. A Claw is a good gateway piece for me. Um, yeah, that that one's not God. bad. But right. but honestly, like I hated I hated that Boulez piece so much that it almost kind of got stuck in my brain. Like, well, wait, did he write anything else? Yeah. It, I mean. That when was that piece written in the early fifties or something like that? I feel like that's yes, but this is my third cup of wine, so it's your club. My, it's wine. A club. my, 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 got my a club. third cup of wine. <laughs> but uh, but then I just like I started to really dive into Boulez and say, okay, well, all right, let's leave the fifties behind when he was <laughs> so much in the dogmatic phase of his output. Let's go a little bit later and see what see what's out there you know and then i started to find some really really awesome stuff so it's like it's easy to listen to a a piece and and just say oh i know who that composer is now yeah right you know Mm -hmm. instead of like wow i hate this did they do anything else that i might like or do i hate everything of theirs okay you know yes and are, there we do, are, some... are we doing improv right now? Are you no, yes anding me? No, I'm not. No, I'm I'm You're both being very very open-minded about your lists of things that you hate that you should revi- you revisit. And I agree, and I and I think that that's part of the expansion of our knowledge. But if I listen to a piece that is utter trash, like structurally unsound there's nothing interesting about it it starts on a mezzo piano whatever reason <laughs> and the next 10 pieces of mine are all gonna start mezzo something and end mezzo something too <laughs> um but there there are pieces that i'm just like i i know what school you're coming from 
I understand what point you're trying to make. Yes. I have been here. I have done that. I've learned this lesson. It's like dating that type of guy. I don't need to learn that t- that lesson again. So, so I think yes. I think that's I think that's the crux of the issue, though, is is uh, the awareness factor, right? Uh, uh, are you do you acknowledge that you have given the piece a fair shake? Yes, that, that's that's what I always say. Did you piece, do the work? Yeah, the piece maybe the composer maybe not because of the piece. Well, oh, oh, okay, so, so so you're so that's a that's a multi tiered thing. So you have is. the composer as an individual, the piece as an individual, and your perspective as an individual, right? So the stars have to align. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but honestly, how often do they actually align in such a way that all three of them are trash at the same time? <laughs> And, and now everyone and now everyone should go listen to my music for some trash alignment. <laughs> trash alignment. Wow. Dibs. Wow. Dibs. Oh, I don't want title this. band name something. I don't know. Trash alignment. I, that's I, awesome. I don't need it. Thank you. You're, I think that's a band good. name too. We should we should make a band. Bassoon. Uh, Rob, what you want? You want percussion or electronics? How about that? Drum no set. input. I'll do no uh, input. No mixer. input. So, so no input trash. mixer, bassoon, and clarinet. Trash. No, 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 no. no. Yeah. Ukulele. Oh, for the love. I'll learn. Bassoon, I'll, ukulele, I'll my, and ukulele no input out. mixer. <laughs> I think oh, we got something going here. That's good. That's good. So, as I was, you know, as I was preparing for this and writing down my notes and listening to it several times to you know, kind of reacquaint myself with the piece after probably not listening to it for, you know, at least a couple of years or so. Um, after I listened to it the first time and before I started chronicling the movements, like I listened to it, wrote this, listened to it again, talked about the movements and then wrote a final thing. I want to read the first thing I wrote after I listened to it the first time. Yeah. I think I've probably built this piece up in my head too much. There are definitely some amazing moments in here. However, I'm not sure it's what I thought it was. I think I had it in my head that this was that this piece was an acoustic version of Parmigiani's De Natura Sonorum, and it just isn't. The ninth movement is beautiful. The first movement is amazing. I love the microtonal, almost Messian thing that keeps coming back. That's it. Harvey reminds me a lot of Messian, always floating on the top, never grounded. And then... After I listened to it again and kind of chronicled the movements, uh, what you know, each one, what it's doing, and and where the connections with the other ones and all that, and I write this in my notes. You know, I think I talked myself back into loving this piece. I'm not sure. <laughs> I probably have to spend more time with it. But hey, that's what the summer is for. I should pick ten pieces and really learn them well instead of a bunch of pieces to half-ass and listen to once. Never half-ass two things. Whole-ass one thing. Ron Swanson. <laughs> I hope that's your epitaph. <laughs> Never half-ass two things. That's that's Whole Ron Swanson. One. That's a quote. I just, I love it. Parks love and Rec. It. <laughs> yep. Well, you know, there's a, the, the movie Sweet Home Alabama has an equally, um, you know, poignant moment when the father is walking the daughter down the aisle and uh, he turns and looks at her and says, you can't ride two horses with one ass, sugar beet. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's good. 
And profound. On that- down homes, uh, down homesy, folksy wisdom. I think that's a good place to kind of yeah. let's bring this episode to a close, shall we? <laughs> Thanks for listening. As always, if you want to find out more about adjective new music or lexical tones, please go to our website, www.adjectivenewmusic.com.